Thanks for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. If you're in D.C., we'd love for you to come and join us and become a part of the church family. If you're outside of D.C., we'd love for you to find a church family to get plugged into and invest your life in where you can be held accountable and they can care for you. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill Church, you can give online at redemptionhilldc.org. Father, we thank you that your gospel continues to advance, that your spirit continues to move, that that in the midst of everything else being closed down, there is still the opportunity for your, your work to continue. I thank you that Redemption Hill has rallied and, and come together through this time and continues to love and serve our city. And we pray that you'd give us wisdom to continue to see opportunities and that our church would show light and hope and peace and that you would be moving. And so we... Lift our time and your word together. We thank you for what you've given us in this book of Romans as we continue to study. And we pray this in the name of Christ, our hope and our Savior. Amen. Amen. Well, this past Thursday is Emancipation Day. It's a holiday that's unique to D.C. And so if you're newer to D.C., it might be unfamiliar to you. Um, our kids get Emancipation Day off every year, and so it's one that we've known over the last decade that we've been a part of this place. And um, it, is, it marks the signing of the Compensated Emancipation Act, which President Abraham Lincoln signed on April 16th of 1862. And so annual on April 16th, the city celebrates this holiday. Now, this is different than the Emancipation Proclamation. The Emancipation Proclamation was issued on September 22nd of 1862, so eight and a half months after the Emancipation, Compensated Emancipation Act. So this is the difference. The Emancipation Proclamation was an executive order from Lincoln, the President of the United States, that changed the legal status in federal law to three and a half million enslaved African Americans in the Confederate States. And they, so as, as soon as a slave would escape and um, the Confederate States and, and can escape control of the Confederate, uh, Confederate government, either by crossing the Union lines or in battle, the slave was permanently free. But nine, almost nine months earlier in D.C., all, of, all enslaved people were free, were emancipated, and slaveholders were compensated $300 per freed slave, and an additional $100,000 was allocated by the federal government at the time to pay newly freed slaves $100 a person if they chose to leave to colonize places such as Haiti or Liberia. And so these are this emancipation, though, is looking back at the undoing of the institution of slavery in our nation. And so it's an important holiday in our city, an important history for us to be familiar with. This, this idea of slavery is, there's a uniqueness to the American experience with it because it was entirely based on race and um, people were looked at as subhuman. It, was, it is one of the greatest stains and sins on our nation's past and continues to echo through this day. I bring all this up not just because it's timely this week, but also because the language of slavery and bond service comes up in our passage today. And so it's an important image for us to be able to distinguish that does have some foundation for us that is tied to the American history because we're in this country, but also we need to understand the uniqueness culturally here. And so we're in Romans chapter 6 today. If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to turn there with me. 
Last week, we saw that in Romans 6, that that to be a Christian is to be united with Christ and in union with him in his death and in his resurrection, and that we show that through baptism. And so as we are baptized, we show that we are united with him in his death and resurrection, dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And so today's passage goes on to show us that, and Paul shows us here, that we are emancipated from slavery to sin. And so this whole passage shows us Christian emancipation. And, and we'll look at what that means and how it shows up in our lives. But that is the big theme of, of this passage is Christian emancipation, that we are freed from slavery to sin in Christ Jesus. And this is what we read in Romans chapter 6 from verse 12 to the end of the chapter. So he has just finished saying, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace." What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were, were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you are committed." And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you were once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present yourself, your your members, as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time? From the things of which you are now ashamed. For the end of these things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this passage is packed full as Paul shows us what it means that we have been freed from sin. It's packed densely full and it takes some twists and turns that undoubtedly make us uncomfortable along the way. Because when we hear about we have been emancipated, freed from slavery to sin, then we hear, I think we hear that and say, thank God that the chains of my own bondage have been let go. But then it takes this twist where Paul then says, and so now you are a slave to righteousness and a slave to God. And we say, hold on. Like, I don't, what are, Paul, what are you saying here? Like, you're not allowed to say these things, Paul. Don't you understand how, we, how those things are going to be heard? And again, we need to understand the cultural context, and we'll get into that. But, but we'll take this bit by bit. There's three paragraphs here. We're going to see four implications for us today of what it means to live in freedom. And so the implications for Christian emancipation. First of four, Live in freedom from the reign of sin. And so this is where things begin. 
He, he comes out of this, this glorious argument saying that death, the death that Christ died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So he's saying, in Christ, we are united with him in what was accomplished at the first Easter. That when he put sin to death, if you are in Christ, your sin was put to death in Christ. That when he was raised to life, that if you are in Christ, you are, you are raised to life with Christ. You are united with him. And so therefore, in light of that, don't let sin reign in your body. Don't, don't obey its passions. He's saying don't present your members, your body, as instruments of unrighteousness. Don't allow those things. Don't carry on in the things you would have done before you were in Christ. And don't just go on to pursue whatever your heart desires to be able to do whatever you want to do when you know that it's wrong. Because, but instead, present yourself to God. You have been brought from death to life. He's saying, you, you know, one commentator, one theologian says that baptism is like a doorway between two rooms. You can't be in both places at the same time. You are either in death or you are in life in Christ. Those are our options. And so if you are in life in Christ, why would you go back to the darkness? And sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace. And so he's saying here, live in light of grace. Live in the light of Christ's kingdom. This is hard for us, again, because we play around with sin. We think that sin is making a mistake. When sin biblically is presented, especially here in Romans, as being a power that reigns, that makes commands and you obey it, that pays wages and gives you death is what you earn from it. Sin is a power and a dominion that you are under. And so Paul is saying here, sin has no dominion over you if you're in Christ. The law has no dominion over you if you are in Christ. You are under grace. And this is the framing principle of the argument Paul builds that Christians are people of grace, not law. And so you've been freed, and the language of slavery to sin is powerful here, and, and the, we need to hear it because what he is saying essentially is if those shackles have been taken off of you and you've been freed from those things, why do you go back to the same things that continue to put the shackles on you? It's just going to lead you to death. And you'll, in the things, that, you know, he gets to the end and he says, you once were slaves to sin, but how did that go for you? That's how the passage ends. How did that go? Well, that, you, the, you did things that now you're ashamed of. Like all of the shame that you feel is from living under the, the dominion of sin. The, the echoes of death and darkness in our lives are from sin. This is what has earned us, but you've been set free. And see, the, the theology the, and understanding of God's grace is uncomfortable for us. If it isn't uncomfortable to you, if it isn't scandalous to you, if it isn't hard to wrap your mind around, then you either don't understand it or you don't understand your own sinfulness because you don't understand what it would take to save you. Or it means that God's grace hasn't been made clear enough to you that you understand the reality that everything is wiped clean in Christ, not by anything you have done, but only by something someone else could do. And, and so there's nothing you can do to earn this. There's nothing you can do to control this. On our own, we are under the power of sin and death. We are hopeless. We are mastered by sin. We are so deep in it that sometimes we can't even see it. And so that's why we celebrated last Sunday on Easter, and we continued this Sunday on Easter to remember that Christ died in our place for our sin, was raised to life in the resurrection, and that's why we sing, Jesus paid it all, and all to him I owe. 
Sin had left a crimson stain, and he washed it white as snow. Because we can't earn these things. It's only by what Christ has done. And all we are called to is to believe. It's by God's grace alone, through faith alone, that we are declared righteous in God's sight, not by our own righteousness. And so that raises the question, what then, in verse 15, are we to sin because you're not under the law, but under grace? This is the question that we go to, if we're honest, right? Okay, if that's true, yes, 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 Christ paid it all. And this isn't that big of a deal, right? I mean, you hear that you know, Christ died for all of your sin. Everything you have done, everything that you don't know that you've done, and everything that you will do wrong. And so if you, if you ever find yourself thinking about, am I going to do that? Am I going to look at that? Am I going to respond that way? Or looking at things that you have done and thinking, ah, it's just not that bad, and I just don't think it's that big of a deal. And, so, you know, should we, do we even have to really consider this? All this talk about holiness and sin, isn't that just legalism? And isn't that just old religion that I don't want to hear anymore? Like, I, I don't want to, if the church is going to talk about these things, I don't know if I really want to be there. It's not really uplifting. Why, why not just keep on sinning? And so Paul addresses that. What then are we to continue to sin? We're not under the law. We're under grace. And he says, by no means. He says, don't don't do that. You've been set free. Don't turn back to the darkness. You see, I think Christians fall off on two sides on this. And it it has to do with our eschatology, which is a scary word. And especially when things like a pandemic hit and people start trying to predict the end times and decide who the Antichrist might be. Um, but eschatology is the study of last things. And we, are all, we, we all live with an end in mind, whether or not we can conceptualize and acknowledge that. So I think on one hand, Christians can have an under-realized eschatology. Um, and, and so what this means is that you don't understand the end that has been guaranteed to you in Christ. And so an under-realized eschatology would lead you to think, you know, I'm just a horrible sinner. You have a great theology of the cross, but no theology of the resurrection. That I, I just can't get anything right. There's nothing good in me. Woe is me. All you can think, you walk around with your chin to your chest and a cloud over you. You can't believe that God even really loves you, but you know theologically that you have to say that he loves you. And you know, you know, you can quote Romans 5, which we just covered a few weeks ago and say, well, I know that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so I know that God loves me. But conceptually, when you pray, you don't approach God like a loving father. You, all you feel is the weight of your own sin, and you haven't felt any of the freedom from the dominion of sin, and you're still functionally living under it. You ignore that the image and likeness of God is within you. You ignore or can't believe that there's actually redemption and freedom in Christ, and so you have all of the sorrow and none of the freedom. That's an under-realized eschatology. You don't understand and don't believe in the ends of what Christ has accomplished. On the other hand, we can have an over-realized eschatology. This is what Paul dealt with some in the church in Corinth, that, that you say, I'm in Christ and therefore there is no sin. And so if you go read the book of 1 Corinthians, it's like Christians gone wild. 
They, you know, they, and so they ignore that the battle of sin exists in our own hearts. And they're like, you know, they're making arguments in Corinth. Like, you know, it's good for a man and woman not even to touch each other. We're going to be celibate. And Paul says, yeah, but you're sleeping with each other. So at least get married. You know, they, they are, make arguments that, that, you know, sex is, you know, the food for the stomach and stomach for food. And Paul says, yeah, but you can't sleep with temple prostitutes anymore. Like, these are the issues. Like, you know, you guys are really proud and arrogant, and you have a guy that's sleeping with his father's wife, and even the pagans know that's wrong. Like, these are the things that the Corinthians were doing, and it was an overrealized eschatology that they were saying, we have all of the gifts and all of the goodness and all of the grace, and there's no, sin has no power over us anymore. And so there was no acknowledgement that even though the war was won by Christ, that the battle continues to rage. And there's no acknowledgement. So we can do this too. And ignore the effects of sin in our own hearts, in our own lives, and around us. But the New Testament has a consistent inaugurated eschatology. What this means is there's a sense throughout the New Testament of the already and the not yet. Christ has won. Christ is king. And his reign is not yet consummated as it will be. Death is defeated. And yet we're still dealing with death until Christ returns. And so everything has, it's talked about in past tense, and we're waiting for the fullness of it to come yet. So we are already freed from slavery to sin, yes. And we will experience the fullness of that freedom in the new heavens and the new earth. We are dead to sin, yes, and alive to God in Christ. And we will live forever with him in the light of his glory once we pass through the veil of death. We are freed from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, yes, and we are sojourners and exiles in a place that is under the dominion of darkness. And so we're not without examples of this in our own lives and history. Last week, we looked back to the Revolutionary War. We're going to advance American history a little bit further today. So I talked about at the beginning that we celebrated Emancipation Day in D.C., and the meaning of that day here is with the Compensated Emancipation Act, and that... In, later on in September of 1863, President Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation that, uh, that was effectively the, the federal government's proclamation that all enslaved African-American people were set free. That proclamation itself did not end the institution of slavery on the spot. It's not like the Confederate States said, okay, and dropped everybody off at the border or set everyone free. And instead, it, it actually took almost three years before things came to their, fruit, to their fullness. And this is what is celebrated on Juneteenth. That on, in 1865, almost three years after the Emancipation Proclamation, um, the last place to, to set their slaves free officially was Texas, and particularly in Galveston and Houston area was where, where many people were. There were there's estimates of 250,000 enslaved people in Texas at the time. And it took the Union Army General Gordon Granger arrived at Galveston Island with 2,000 federal troops to occupy Texas on behalf of the federal government. And on the following day, it was finally issued the order of total emancipation of the enslaved people in Texas at the time. Again, the Emancipation Proclamation was three years earlier, and it took till June 19th of 1865 for people to experience the application of that proclamation. And still, it's not like our nation is over this. The, the stain of race-based chattel slavery remains deeply embedded in our nation. The institution of slavery was ended on June 19th, 1865, 
but there are lingering effects today of racial division and inequality and injustice. And this is the miracle of the black church. That, and, and what is incredible, that you can see joy and suffering and lament with dancing and hope that is clung to in the midst of the worst of darkness and a model for us on how to walk through suffering and uncertainty like we're experiencing now. And so we hear the, the anthemic hymn, Lift Every Voice and Sing, which says, Lift every voice and sing till earth and heaven ring, ring with the harmonies of liberty. Let our rejoicing rise high as the listening skies. Let it resound loud as the rolling sea. Sing a song full of the faith that the dark past has taught us. Sing a song full of the hope that the present has brought us. Facing the rising sun of our new day begun, let us march on till victory is won. This is what it means to walk forward in the midst of uncertainty and suffering with the promises of God on the horizon, longing for them and being able to walk through suffering in the midst of it. This is what it looks like to be unchained in your soul, even as we don't experience the fullness of it in our lives. And so that's the first implication. The second for Christian emancipation is to live in the freedom to righteousness. So we live free from the reign of sin and free to righteousness. And so are we, under, are we to sin because we're not under the law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? You're either a slave of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which, lead, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you are committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. And so Paul is saying here, we're set free from the bondage to sin to control us into the freedom to live in righteousness. And he says here, you, our obedience is going to shape who it is that masters us. And we have two options here. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. You're in darkness or you're in light. You're in sin or you're in righteousness. That's the options that we have in front of us. You're going to have to serve somebody. And who you serve will determine where you fall. This is Bob Dylan, his classic song that, that says, you may be a construction worker working on a home. You may be living in a mansion or you might live in a dome. You might own guns. You might even own tanks. You might be somebody's landlord, you might even own banks, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. You may be a preacher with your spiritual pride. You may be a city councilman taking bribes on the side. You may be working in a barber shop. You may know how to cut hair. You may be somebody's mistress, may be somebody's heir, but you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil and it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. I know some of you right now, all you heard was somebody might be a barber because <laughs> we are all in desperate need. <laughs> but they, what, what, he, what is captured here is captured in our passage and that obedience flows from our hearts. You see that in, ver, in verse 17. Thanks be to God because, that you who were once slaved, enslaved to sin, that you who once were mastered by sin, thank God that you've become obedient. But what does your obedience stem from? It stems from your heart. And your obedience then is to the standard of 
what you've been taught, to the teaching of which, to which you were committed. And so it's from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Paul's saying you've been freed from sin and your obedience has been shifted to a new master. And so this gets into even Jesus' call to us that so often is taught in churches that we emphasize in Redemption Hill called the Great Commission. In Matthew 28, when Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And oftentimes, I feel like we stop there. That's what we want to do. We want to go and make disciples and baptize them. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He goes on to say, Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So Jesus says, go and make disciples, which means a follower of Christ. He says, so go and, and, and help people to turn to Jesus, to convert to Christianity, to come and follow him. And that begins with baptism, as we saw last week, that that unites us with Christ and his death and resurrection. But then it doesn't stop there. Discipleship is ongoing as we continue to teach each other to observe everything that Christ has commanded us as followers together of Jesus. And so we live in freedom to righteousness. The third implication of Christian emancipation is to live in the freedom as a slave of Christ. So we live in freedom to the reign of sin, freedom to, from the reign of sin to righteousness, and then as our status is as a slave of Christ. Now again, I think this is hard for us to hear, and it's hard for us to wrap our minds and our hearts around that we can say, emancipated from sin, yes and amen. Freed from the shackles of darkness, yes and amen. Freed from death to life, yes and amen. Freed to become a slave. That's hard to hear. Now, Scripture has been twisted in all kinds of ways, and so we can't get into the fullness of that. But we'll just say simply, the Bible does not endorse slavery and enslaving people. The Bible does deal with the cultural reality of slavery, and Paul is writing into a particular cultural moment here. There's a little book, a theology book by Murray Harris called Slave of Christ, a New Testament metaphor for total devotion to Christ that is incredibly helpful on this. It's a little dense and academic, but it's the best volume I've seen on this topic and one that is hard to wrestle through, especially because we have so much cultural baggage on what is, is a grievous sin and, and an institution that existed in this nation in particular. And so let me clarify a, couple, a few things about what Paul's language here. In Rome, in the New Testament era, there were, uh, there's an estimate by, many, by some scholars that there were about 2 million slaves out of a total po population in Italy at the time of 5 to 6 million, so a 1 to 3 ratio. But... Slavery, as it was conducted there, was bond service, and it wasn't the same as chattel slavery, and, race, and it wasn't race-based. It wasn't an indicator of class, even, economically, or an indicator of activity and what people had access to and what they were able to do. You were, um, you were able to take on, and often enslaved people then were able to take on the status of their master and earn income on their own, and it was never based on a single race, and people's personhood was never denied. There were protections for people. And so Murray Harris in his book defines this concept in the New Testament as Paul is utilizing a concept to say that this is someone whose person and service belongs wholly to another. Now, that's important here. 
someone whose person and service belongs wholly to another. He talks then that in the first century, slaves were not always distinguishable from free people. It wasn't based on race. It wasn't based on speech or language. It wasn't based on clothing. At times, slaves or servants here were sometimes more highly educated than their owners and were responsible for professional positions. And some persons sold themselves into slavery for economic or social advantage or if they had debt because they couldn't pay it off. But they had a reasonable hope that they would be emancipated within 10 or at most 20 years of service. And so they weren't denied the right of public assembly. They weren't socially segregated, at least in cities. They could accumulate savings to buy their freedom, and their natural inferiority was never assumed. And so that cultural background is important as we consider Romans chapter 6, because it frames what the Apostle Paul is saying here, is that the call is that to be a slave to Christ and be freed to that means that we are called to belong wholly in person and in service to the one who has saved us and paid for our freedom. And that's what he is pushing here. I think this is helpful in the words of Dr. Josef Tsson. He's a Romanian pastor who was arrested and imprisoned from 1974 to 1977 in Romania. He was exiled from the country in 1981. And he was adamant about his preference to be introduced to people as a slave to Christ. You can imagine what that would do in an American context when this Romanian was insisting that, and people were very uncomfortable saying, no, I don't think I'm going to do that. And so he had this to say. He said, there aren't many people who are willing to introduce me as a slave. They substitute servant for slave. In the 20th century Christianity, we have replaced the expression total surrender with the word commitment and slave with servant. But there is an important difference A servant gives service to someone. We commit ourselves to do something. But when we surrender ourselves to someone, we give ourselves up. So this is the costliness of following Jesus. And remember that Paul is setting up a whole series of contrasts here through the section, saying, saying we only have two options. You are in Adam or you're in Christ. You are in darkness or you are in light. You are in sin or you are in righteousness. You are in death or you are in life. And here you are either enslaved and obedient to the power of sin or you are enslaved and obedient to the power of righteousness and life in Christ. And so which kingdom are you in? Which kingdom do you serve? And none of us gets to be the king. And so this concept is important for us to be untangled a bit from the American history and story without, say, without dislodging ourselves, because we can't. We are, but what it's saying here is that we are not set free from the dominion of darkness and sin just to continue to live as if we are in that kingdom. Instead, we are set free from that bondage and free from our own selfishness and self-indulgence so that we can actually experience freedom, that we can live as we are designed to live and, and without the weight of our own sin and without the weight of our own shame, that we're freed from those things and that we can trust that we take on the status and the identity and that we are included in the household of God. And then we have other passages that unpack language differently because of the way the metaphors are being used. And so in Galatians chapter 4, we read that we are not just servants of a household, that we're welcomed in as children of the king. And so don't get too myopically focused just on this, but understand what he's doing with this here and understand that that if this is true, that we're freed from either bondage to sin or bondage to Christ, then take the bondage to Christ. 
That's where there's hope and life. And as Frederick Douglass said, he who has God and conscience on his side has a majority against the universe. And so turning to Christ brings a new bondage. We are irreversibly tied to Jesus and bound to him and praise God that it's irreversible because my own wandering heart keeps looking back like that look back gif at the things that I shouldn't want anymore. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. And, and even there, I think we're too quick in understanding these things and trying to sort through them. We're too quick in hearing that we can be freed from sin even to become enslaved to our own idea of an ideal of emancipation. We become enslaved to our ideas of freedom and caught up in, in that, of being stuck in an idea of what it means to be free, to be unshackled from any conditions or any expectations or any, 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 any ways that we ought to live. But as F.F. Bruce says, that a truly emancipated spirit like Paul's is not in bondage even to its own emancipation. And so we live in the freedom to righteousness, from sin to righteousness, as a slave to Christ. And fourth, and finally, we live in freedom to bear good fruit. And so this is how the passage goes on. This is having been set free from sin, I've become a slave of righteousness. And I love verse 19, a little jab from the Apostle Paul at the Romans. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. Like, I don't know, that, that to me seems like probably an unhelpful point in his argument. Like, Romans, this is all you'll understand. But just as you, we once, as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. You see, you see what he's saying? That the way we live our life is going to bear fruit. It's going to have results. It's going to, the, the things that we do will have outputs to them. This is something we all know during a lockdown. We're not as active. We're not as far out of the house. We have food around us most of the day. And for some people, we're not going to recognize them when we get back um, because we get indulgent in those moments. And so the things that you put in will shape your life. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting in that time? He's saying, look back at your life. What does life apart from Christ feel like? What good did it do you? What did it earn you? The end of, these are only things that you're ashamed of now. And the end of these things is death, but you've been set free. And you've become slaves to God, and the fruit that you get leads to sanctification and eternal life. So this is what you, what you gain in Christ. Sanctification is holiness, that you're cleansed by God's Spirit, and you get life instead of death. And so do you see that these are our two options? That in slavery to sin versus slavery to God in Christ, that in sin you're under, under the law, condemned by the law. In Christ, you're under grace. That in sin, it leads to death where obedience leads to righteousness. Obedience puts you under sin where, where now he, it's saying you, you're obedient to what you've been taught and what you've been committed to. You move from impurity to righteousness and from ever-increasing wickedness to holiness in, sla in slavery to sin versus freed from sin, ashamed of the fruit of your life to, being, to reaping holiness and life as you live and that wages equal death and that the gift of God is life. And so our lives will bear fruit. And this isn't new in the, in the New Testament. Jesus talked about this. In Luke chapter 6, he said, No good tree bears bad fruit. Nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. 
for each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of the evil treasure, his, his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of, his, of the heart, his mouth speaks. Do you hear, I mean, Jesus is, is this is, a, I think, a funny reference. I didn't grow up in agriculture, but I think for those of his, his followers, most of his followers did, and for them to hear, like, hey, guys, like, can you imagine a thorn bush producing figs? That's funny, Jesus. And, and can you imagine, you know, grapes being picked from a bramble? Well, no, grapes grow on a grapevine. Of course, those, you know, the bad plants don't produce good fruit for us to eat. And, and so... If you imagine this picture, like if you go and hang a bunch of grapes on a thorn bush and some figs on, on a thorn bush, like the, that fruit isn't going to flourish. It's going to dry up and quickly be exposed that it's not being grown on that thorn bush. And so I think similarly, we, we might try to hang some fake fruit on our lives, but it will dry up over time. And so when we look at your life, the fruit you produce is going to show where you, where you are, whether you're in sin or in Christ. And we've been, it's not like the, it, we're left with you know, a vague understanding of the good things that God's Spirit produces in us. Especially in Galatians 5, it tells us the kind of fruit uh, that we experience in the Spirit. That the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against these things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And so if you want to look and try to understand how do you evaluate the fruit of your life, what, is, what does it tell you about your life, this is a great spot to look. To be able to, to say, you know, am I more loving right now than I was a year ago? Am I more joyful and more, more filled with peace and more patient? Am I kinder to people around me and filled with goodness and faithfulness? Am I faithful to my word and to my commitments? Am I gentle and self-controlled? Again, a good reminder that we don't become exempt from these things because of stay-at-home orders. I live in a very small row house with five of us in it. We are in tight quarters all the time. You guys know what this is like. We all live in D.C. But there's five of us, and our living space is a room. Like, we call it the living room and dining room because we try to make it feel spacious <laughs> and say, like, well, you have to set up at the desk. You set up at the dining room table. You can set up on the couch. It's like you're within six feet of each other. You are violating social distancing in our three rooms. Um, and and so it's hard sometimes to be loving and to be joyful and to be patient with each other, to be kind and faithful and gentle and self-controlled. But the fruit of God's Spirit's work within us is going to look these ways. It's going to look like these characteristics. This is the fruit that will come out. And, and did you catch in Luke 6 one of the quickest ways that we can identify the Spirit's work within us? is by what comes out of our mouths. How do you know if you're loving and gentle and patient and kind and good and faithful and self-controlled? Well, it starts with your mouth. Because it's out of the overflow of the mouth that the heart, or overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. And so the things that come out of your mouth are what is brimming within your heart. 
And so this is a, it's a tough thing to hear, but it, it's a clear evaluation. This is the beauty of, of Christian community, too. And, well, I mean, we've got built in my family. There's five of us, and we get to hear from each other when we have not been loving and kind and patient and self-controlled. I have to hear those things, and it's hard sometimes to repent to my kids. But we have to be careful here, too. Because living in freedom to bear good fruit and hearing these things may begin to sound like a moralistic demand. Bear more fruit. Do better. You know, put on airs that you're more loving. Try harder to at least put your, you know, show yourself to be self-controlled. And that's not what this is saying. That's hanging fruit on a bramble bush. But what this is saying is that the Spirit's work in you will cultivate these characteristics over time. And this is where we need to hear, and this is maybe the thing, we come back to this regularly, but we need to hear this call from Jesus because this is also in the same vein when he says, come to me if you labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Stop pulling this on your own. You can't earn your righteousness. You can't earn the fruit of the Spirit. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so this is the hope that we have. It's not a call, produce good fruit so that you can be given the Spirit of God. It is you have been moved by Christ from slavery to sin to bondage to him, and now you are being given the freedom to, to bear good fruit that you could never bear on your own. It is, it's, it's the Spirit's work within you that will burst through in these ways. And so this is Christ's work in us, not what we need to earn to come to him. All right, now our passage today ends and, and, and ties itself up before moving on into a new, into a new subject. Um, and it ends with maybe one of the most compact presentations of the gospel that we see in Scripture that we could ever hope for. In Romans 6.23, where it says, for, so this is the summarizing, ex- explaining, you've been set free from sin and become slaves to God, and the fruit um, that you get leads to, that you get, not that, not that you make, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Why? For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, this is one verse that I have written down on more coffee-stained cafe napkins than I can remember because it concisely captures the decision that every one of us faces when we hear that God has called all people in all places everywhere to repent. When we under- if you want to understand the gospel, this will help. And so if you're, if you're listening in and you're not a Christian, this is what the good news of Jesus is all about. If you are a Christian, this is a way to capture succinctly what the gospel is, what the good news of Jesus is about. And so all you have to do is define six terms that are in this verse. On the one hand, you have wages. That wages are what? Well, it's something you earn. That's what you get in a paycheck when you see what your wages were versus what taxes were withheld. So wages are are, is, is income that's earned. Sin, we've been talking about this a lot in Romans, that sin is the power of death over us that came through Adam, and it includes that we are sinners by nature and by choice, that we've done things we know are wrong. Well, what has it earned us that we've sinned? Death in the end. Separation from God, being removed from his glory, 
and experiencing death in this world now and the fearfulness of death over us. Now, on the other hand, we have three opposing terms. That the gift, which is something free, that's different than wages, right? The gift that God gives us, and, and we all know this because none of us go in and, well, now you can't hug anybody, but none of us go in and hug our boss when we get a paycheck deposited. We think, okay, that's something I've earned. I'm glad that it showed up today. We don't go, oh, thank you for this. But a gift, when somebody brings a gift, is something unearned, unmerited. And it's something that, that, that we, cannot, we cannot bring ourselves to be able to feel like it is due to us. Well, God is the creator of all things. And what this tells us is the gift that God gives us is life eternally. And so within this, what this shows us is that we have two options. That there's a chasm fixed between them. And that on our own, every one of us stands in the wages of sin and death. That we are under the dominion of darkness and death. And that, that we have no hope of crossing into God's righteousness on our own. But the beauty of what we see in Romans 6.23 is that the way, while the wages of sin is, is death, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So he is the hope that we have. Not that we can bridge the chasm, but that he has bridged it for us. And that in him, we have been moved from darkness to life. We have been moved from being stuck in obedience to sin to turning in obedience to God in Christ. And that this is the good news that, that applies immediately to us. And so the call for every one of us is which side are you going to be on? Are you going to embrace that Christ is the way for you to move from darkness to light? Are you going to embrace that moving from bondage to sin means you moved in bondage to the King, Jesus Christ, and that you are filled with his spirit to live in the, in the light of his kingdom? See, again, this is, we've been emancipated from slavery to sin. And this is a theme that is, that is built into our history as we celebrate Emancipation Day in D.C. and celebrate what was the beginning, at least, of the ending of a wicked and evil institution. And so it's a reminder to us. Juneteenth is a reminder to us. And both are reminders that the work that was accomplished then is still not done today. And each Sunday, as a church, we mark that in Christ, we are freed from slavery to sin and death. That by his death and resurrection, he broke our bondage that was established in Adam and freed us from that bondage that was handed down to us. And so it's a Christian emancipation. And so today, the call for you, if you're in Christ, is go and live in freedom. Live in the freedom from the reign of sin. Live in freedom to righteousness, in freedom as a slave of Christ. Bind yourself to him that you are wholly his in person and in service. Live in freedom to bear good fruit, not that you're earning it, but that God works through you to accomplish good things. Because if you're in Jesus Christ, Christ has set you free. Don't submit to another yoke or another bondage of slavery. You bear the mark of the authority of the king over all kings. You have access to wealth of an eternal inheritance. You have been granted resurrection life that death can never conquer and righteousness that sin cannot touch. There is no man or woman who owns or controls your soul and the devil himself can only pester you, but he cannot destroy you. You were bought with a price and the blood of Christ has secured your freedom. Now live in it. 
reject the the glories of this world, knowing that they pass away like the grass and flowers of the field. They're going to fade, but the, the word of the Lord will stand forever. And in Christ, we are freed to reflect the glory and brilliance of the one who gave himself up for us. And so, yes, the wages of our sin is death. But God's gift to us is eternal life, and it only comes through Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we need to hear the good news of the gospel every week because we forget it constantly. Forgive us for glances backward, longing for for things that we've left behind. We pray that you would that you would stir in us a passionate desire for you that makes it so that the things of this world and the things of our own sinful passions and desires sour in our mouths. Help us to long for the fruit of the tree of life. So we pray and pray that we would, we would be willing to let go of the things that held us in bondage. That we'd be willing to embrace the freedom you've called us to walk in. That we, we, we'd be willing to embrace that the freedom you call us to as being bound to Christ, taking his yoke upon us, and trusting that we'll find rest for our souls because his yoke is easy and his burden is light because he is the one who accomplished the work. And we can rest that it is finished. As we pray today that you would fix these things firmly in our hearts and free us to live. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.